0: Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 49 called Elise. So guys, this episode, I'm proud to partner with Conceivabilities, a leading surrogacy and egg donation agency that has been around for 24 years with thousands of babies born. Conceivabilities prides themselves on matching intended parents with the perfect surrogate or egg donor. They've even trademarked the process they used called matching matters, They support the intended parents and surrogates throughout the entire journey. Legal, escrow, pregnancy management, insurance, and every other aspect. The Conceivabilities team includes nurses, mental health workers, lawyers, and other professionals to guide the process. If surrogacy or egg donation is part of your journey, make sure to check out conceivabilities.com and make sure to tell them Infertile AF sent you. On this episode, I'm partnering with Extend Fertility, which was founded on the premise that democratizing egg freezing could ultimately change the fertility industry and deliver better results. Their co-founder, Dr. Joshua Klein, who is near and dear to my heart because he was actually my doctor, and you may have heard me interview him in episode 36 of this podcast, is a brilliant, supportive, and overall awesome doctor, And he's a bit of a disruptor because when he observed that IVF's success rate was low for women over 40 and its high cost was disappointing for doctors and patients alike, he took matters into his own hands. He saw the opportunity to help women think more proactively about their fertility and he founded Extend Fertility, which began offering egg freezing at 40% below the national average. By 2017, they were the largest egg freezing practice in the nation. And today, they've expanded to offer a full range of infertility services, including IVF, in a small practice environment that's more personal, higher quality, and more data-driven. So to make an appointment with Extend or find out more, go to extendfertility.com and make sure to tell them that Infertile AF sent you. Thanks. So today's guest, Elise, is a woman that I met in this infertility space because she is the founder of Fruitfulfertility.org, which is a fertility mentorship service for the one in eight. And I am a mentor at Fruitful, and Elise is doing amazing things after going through her own infertility journey. So today she's going to tell us about that. And one thing I love about Fruitful is that one of their taglines is We're committed to making infertility suck less. So we're going to hear how Elise is making that happen, how she's making it suck less. And she's going to tell us all about where she is today. So without further ado, this is Elise's Infertility Story. Elise, it's so good to talk
1: to you. Thank you for doing this today. Oh my gosh. Thanks so much for having me, Allie. I'm super excited to be here.
0: Yeah. So we worked together a little bit before because Fruitful, which is your company that we'll talk about, I signed up to be a mentor through you and you have this amazing mentorship program and more. And I love that one of your taglines on your site, it says, we're committed to making infertility suck less. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, okay, this is a girl with the same sensibility as me. So thank you for writing that and thinking that because I feel-
1: Oh my gosh. Of course, I think anyone who goes through infertility or is trying to build their family understands that this is a needlessly isolating process. And there are millions of people out there who are going through something really similar. And there's really no need for it to be as shitty as it is. Like it's pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. But I think there are ways that, as a community and as uh, you know, our healthcare system in general, we can find better ways to support the community. And that's really what my personal mission is and you know, the mission of Fruitful is.
0: I love it. Okay. I want to get into that more as we go throughout the chronology of your story, but tell me how this all started for you. So I know you and your husband, Brad, started trying to have a baby in 2014 and you said that you thought it would be easy like going to get frozen yogurt. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think like when you're in, you know, sex ed class or health class as a kid, you're just taught like how easy it is to get pregnant. And oh my gosh, you better be so careful about hot tubs and toilet seats. And they just scared the crap out of me when I was in middle school and high school. I just thought it was so easy to get pregnant. And so I think for me, a lot of the shock at the initial diagnosis and the struggle at the beginning was just my expectations were tragically misaligned. Mm -hmm. I had no idea it could be this hard. I had no idea that even for a perfectly healthy heterosexual couple trying at the exact right time in their cycle, you still only had like a 20 to 30% chance of getting pregnant. It's wild. I think I just had a really steep learning curve from a Mm -hmm. biology perspective. And I don't know, I was just an entitled, you know, young, early 30-something. Yeah. Thinking I had all this time, thinking I had played my cards right. I'd been focused on my career. My husband and I had a great marriage where we were friends and went to baseball games and doing whatever we wanted. Why would there be a problem? Nothing. hmm mm-hmm.
0: When you think about like sex ed, we've talked about this a lot on my podcast. It keeps coming up because it's it's women like you and me who are like, we were lied to all those years. Like I
1: know. It's I just not think like you get the-
0: pregnant when if you sneeze. Like it is so much harder.
1: Yeah. And that's where a lot of the shame comes in too, is you think like, what's wrong with my body? What's wrong with me? And it's like, oh, actually this is a pretty common thing that happens to quite a few people. And it's not some super shameful secret thing that you can't ever share with anyone else. So I think that was sort of the the beginning of that learning curve was figuring out, it's not that my body is broken or deficient or I'm not enough. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, so much more than that. It's so many different factors and you don't have to go through it by yourself. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So tell me what happened with you guys. So you started yeah. trying, you you said you were in your 30s, early 30s, mid 30s. Yep,
1: yep. We had gone to dinner with our best couple of friends and they told us we we're pregnant. And I remember that was the first time I'd ever felt anything other than just pure happiness and excitement, I was actually feeling a little jealous. Mm-hmm. And I remember leaving that dinner and I was really quiet, which was not characteristic of me. Mm-hmm. And Brad mm-hmm. was like, are you okay? And I said, this is going to sound weird, but I feel kind of jealous that they're pregnant. He was like, oh my gosh, me too. And then we were like, let's start. We're going to have a baby. We're going to have a family. We felt like today next day I would stop my birth control and be pregnant. So yeah. I think we were just kind yeah. of shocked at how long everything took We waited the full year of trying. Naturally, before we went to an OB, I went to my OB and she said everything looked good on paper, gave me a prescription of Clomid and sent me on my way. And it was just still going to be another six months until I got a diagnosis of endometriosis at my fertility clinic. I couldn't believe that it had taken almost two years to get that diagnosis. I was like, wow, we could have gotten to this a lot faster (laughs) if I had advocated more for myself Did you have a
0: feeling that you did have endometriosis or something like that? Like, tell me what was going on with you.
1: No, I was totally shocked. My cycles have always been very normal in length and very predictable. And so when I go into my OB or to any doctor, they say, how are your cycles? And I say, oh, you know, like kind of painful, but 28 days on the nose." I don't think I really realized that endometriosis is such a tricky diagnosis because it shows itself in so many different ways for different people where some women, you know, can't even get up off the floor. They're in so much pain. And then for other women, I didn't even know I had it. So mm-hmm. it was crazy. I will never forget being in that fertility clinic. It was our first baseline ultrasound. And the ultrasound tech said, hold on a second. I'll be right back. I'm going to bring in the doctor. And that's when you know stuff is going sideways, when when the ultrasound tech brings in the doctor are like, okay, something something is is sideways here. Yeah. They get and that the doctor,
0: look on their face and they get yeah, quiet. And then they're where like, they're like hey, we'll be right back. Give us a minute. Totally, they're and like, I can't there, be the
1: one to tell you.
0: Right. And when then you're you sitting some... there like legs and stirrups and you're like, shit, what's about to happen? What are they about totally,
1: to Totally. I know. You're like, oh God. So my doctor came in and she said, well, there's good news and bad news. The good news is we know why you're not getting pregnant the bad news is you have cysts on your ovaries. So that was the first time that we really had a diagnosis and a reason. So on the one hand, it felt good to have there be a scientific medical reason why this wasn't happening because on paper, everything looked fine. Brad's semen analysis came back fine. My AMH came back fine. And so it felt like, oh, okay, there is, there's a reason this is happening and there's a way we can work around it. But on the other hand, then you're given this diagnosis and you know that affects your health.
0: What had been happening with you guys? Like you just weren't getting pregnant or had you had a miscarriage or?
1: No, I'd never seen a positive pregnancy test. I honestly thought women were just like drawing second pink lines on a pregnancy test. Like I didn't even believe it could have two pink lines.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: So no, I, I'd never seen a positive pregnancy test. I was, would scroll through Instagram and just be so jealous and heartbroken and right. wonder what it would look like when it was my turn.
0: Okay, so what happened then?
1: So then we were given the decision after that diagnosis where we could either pursue IUIs if we wanted, or we could pursue IVF. And for us, we were hyper aware of how much everything was going to cost. And we talked to our doctor. She said that for us, an IUI would really only give us about a 10% chance of success. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about if we did IVF, if we did genetic testing on the embryos, if we did a frozen transfer closer to 70 or 80%. We were like, this is a no-brainer for us, for mm-hmm. us, because of the way my medical history was, the way our insurance worked or didn't work. And so we decided, you know what, instead of spending three months on IUIs, let's take that money, let's take that 1500 bucks a pop it would have cost, put that towards IVF and just skip IUIs altogether. Mm-hmm. So that was okay. what we did. Yeah. And it was funny because... Brad was really anti-IVF in the beginning. He really didn't want to do it. And I don't blame him. Nobody wants to do IVF. No one's like, yay, sign me up. I want to spend a bunch of money. Exactly. And he treated like a freaking science experiment. Sounds great. But I think when he heard those percentages, his sports gambling brain started turning and he was like, oh, okay. uh, He started understanding the statistics and started seeing, okay, this might actually be our fastest, cleanest path to parenthood.
0: Okay. Tell me a little bit more about his reservations for doing it. Did he tell you why? Because my husband had the same thing. You know, he really just didn't want to go down that road. And I get it when he explained it to me.
1: He didn't use this word, but I think he thought it was kind of creepy. The sci-fi esque feeling of like creating life and little Petri dishes. And I think it was really, he just, I think he didn't, That no one sees their life happening that way. No one thinks oh my gosh, we're going to get pregnant in a doctor's office. Like you want the romance, and that's how you've pictured it happening your whole life. You sort of just take that picture for granted, and I think it was really some grieving Mm -hmm. and really mourning the loss of this. Oh my gosh, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to make a YouTube video of surprising him with my pregnancy test. Like the naive (laughs) crap the beginning is just so embarrassing in hindsight. But I think also like like with anything, it was just, we had to pivot our expectations. We had to learn more. We had to research more when he understood how scientific the process was and it wasn't actually that sci-fi and it was a very proven, not very procedure. I think he started to get more comfortable.
0: You have said and explained, described yourself as a natural born control freak. So this whole process was like (laughs) like torture for you, right? And I think that that's a huge theme that keeps coming up is the lack of control. So tell me how that was for you.
1: Yeah, that was the hardest part of everything was feeling like I had no control over anything that was gonna happen to me, feeling like I'd made such great decisions my whole life. And I've always been such a good girl and gotten such good grades and been a people pleaser. And it just felt like I'd worked so hard for nothing essentially. Or I think it's also, as human beings, we like to pretend that we have control of our lives Mm -hmm. because it makes us feel better. No one wants to live in a world where we think, oh my gosh, tomorrow I could get terminal cancer. Tomorrow I could be hit by a bus. We know that that's true. But I think there's a part of us that thinks that, okay, well, if I just eat more spinach and I just eat organic and I just never take the bus and I never do any of these, these things nothing bad will happen to me. Mm -hmm. I think that was the hardest thing is looking at, wow, you can do everything right your whole life and still things don't work out the way you want them to. I think a lot of people are forced to look at that a lot earlier. And because I was lucky and I was sheltered and I didn't have to think about a lot of stuff, that lesson came to me later. But the control stuff was definitely the hardest. It was so hard to not be able to plan Vacations in advance. I just remember worrying about all these different things that could happen or fringe cases and just finding stuff to obsess and be anxious about. And none of it helped. It all made it so much worse. Mm -hmm. And how were things between
0: you and your husband?
1: Not great. (laughs) Really not great. And I think that's because he's such a naturally positive person and he does a much better job at. Trusting the universe than I do, where I wanna just like grab on and try to steer and control. And he's so much more go with the flow, whatever happens, happens. And mm-hmm. I think we can each get on each other's nerves because I get into a mindset of like, why can't you just care more about this? Why am I the only one who cares? Because to mm-hmm. me, having anxiety about something shows that you care about something. It's kind of messed up. It's like anxiety is my love language or something. I'm no, like, Be- I, know me. I know what you mean.
0: I know what you mean. That's yeah. not messed up. I get it.
1: I'm like, be in the trenches with me. Why are you not worried? Like, it doesn't help me for you to feel calm about it.
0: Right. Is that one yeah. of the love languages, by the way? I haven't read that.
1: <laughs> no. uh, it's not. It would okay. be like the opposite of the love language. Okay. It's like an opposite. <laughs> love
0: but I get it where, you, you know, you feel like anxiety is going to Show that you care if you're anxious about something. I
1: get that. totally, and that's you know, growing up with a Jewish anxious mother, and you know, that's a whole other podcast. But I think that's just like how I've been raised to to show caring and passion and and love. Is you know, you you get, get stressed and you you get worked up. You get passionate. You yell. Yeah. Google. You overanalyze. You text twenty of your friends to interpret what this text meant. Like that's just what you do, and anything less than that is you know, being too passive. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. So you guys are at the point now where you're going to do IVF, but you haven't started yet, right?
1: Yeah. And I think that was actually when we started getting along a lot better was when we decided we were going to do IVF. Because up until that point also, he was pretty much just saying I was being overdramatic and Mm -hmm. there wasn't anything wrong and why would anything be wrong? Everything came back normal. And so I think I felt very validated with the endometriosis diagnosis. And I think it made him see, wow, Elise isn't crazy. She was right. And let's kind of get on the same page and be a team and get through this together.
0: Right, right. That makes so much sense to me. I'd be like, I fucking knew it. There's something. I know. Oh
1: my God. I was like, I fucking knew it for like three months. (laughs) Um, Very gloaty and not cool about it. Right. And then I think when we started IVF, he felt like there was more he could do. And he felt like he could help with the injections. He could help with the meds. He could go to the pharmacy and get more. I think he felt more engaged in the process rather than me just like secret tracking my temperature and my apps and obsessing late at night. It was more, Mm. we have a plan, we're doing it, we're working together. It felt more collaborative and like a project.
0: Yeah. Plus the stats are part of it too, which he was more comfortable with probably like you said. So it all plays into it together. Yeah. So
1: we totally, so we were getting ready to our first round. We were both really excited. I was doing everything like acupuncture, mind massage, I was in therapy, I had this infertility yoga class that I loved. I was managing the shit out of my infertility. It was Mm -hmm. like I had my whole care team. I was trying to hack it the best I could. Mm -hmm. And then our first was a huge flop. (laughs) And that was the lowest of the low. So we Mm -hmm. had our round of IVF. We got seven eggs, three of them fertilized, two made it to blast. And both of them came back as chromosomally abnormal, so we had nothing to transfer. Mm-hmm. So, so that was that really, feel? yeah, that was, that was the lowest of the low. And I remember especially we were getting ready to go on vacation with Brad's family and all my nephews who are so cute and little. And I remember just seeing my sister-in-law wrap her little kiddos in a beach towel and just started crying because I was mm-hmm. like, this might never happen for us. And I think that was the first time I really understood the real stakes and the real limitations. And I thought, do I even want to do this again? You know, obviously financially, it's a huge, it's a huge blow. I mean, we walked in there, we paid entirely out of pocket. Mm -hmm. It felt like walking into a casino, Mm -hmm. putting $20,000 on a chip, you know, in roulette. Is that the game you play with like the spinny ball? Roulette, right? Okay, I'm not a gambler. Yeah, you can go black or red or you can bet
0: a specific number.
1: Yeah, I love okay. roulette. it felt like that. And then we spun the wheel one time and we immediately lost. And right, the, and
0: they're like sweeping your chips like, like, thanks for
1: playing, bye. Totally, and you're like, what? That was literally four seconds. I can't even, I didn't get my cocktail yet. Right. So it kind of felt like that. And honestly, I didn't even know if I wanted to do it again. I was like, this has kicked my ass. I felt so stupid and naive.
0: Oh.
1: Oh, if I can yeah. do this again.
0: yeah. I think that's pretty common though. It's just, it beats beats you up emotionally and physically.
1: Felt what, this was a sure thing. I thought I could buy my way out of this. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of back to the drawing board and that was another time in our relationship where we weren't really alone. Surprisingly, Brad, very anti-IVF at the beginning, was all of a sudden, let's do one more round. I think we should do it. That was bad luck. It was a bad bounce physically, emotionally, hormonally. I just not feeling up for it. And I didn't want to spend that much money again on like another chance. It just felt irresponsible. Mm-hmm. So my mother-in-law said, we'll help you out a little bit. I was mm-hmm. like, I don't feel comfortable with you like lending us this money. I'm really not comfortable with this. I remember feeling really stupid and really seen and I really appreciated reaching out to me, and that was what I—that was the push I needed. So I was like, "Great, let's do." Two.
0: Yeah. So you do another so round.
1: So we did round. We adjusted the protocol quite a bit, um, which is the benefit of doing it more than one time. I feel like with IBM, that first round is really just a baseline. They don't know how your body's going to react, but really after that first retrieval, they have a lot more data. Mm-hmm. So we went back in for a second round. We had a different protocol. So the first round we had seven eggs retrieved. The second round, we had 17 eggs retrieved.
0: Wow. So
1: I was thrilled. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I don't know. It, and and the I, the ironic part was I felt like I was doing a lot less the second round. Mm-hmm. I was still doing acupuncture, but I'd lightened up on some of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. I'd become less obsessive. I'd been journaling less. I'd been more in the moment with my friends. I'd been trying to distract myself more Really Mm -hmm. this idea of like over-managing it. Mm -hmm. So my attitude had kind of changed. Mm -hmm. So then after our second retrieval, we got 17 eggs. So that first round we got in seven. This one we got 17. Yeah. Then uh, I believe nine. Mm -hmm. So we were feeling really confident, like so much better than we were the first round. But we also knew that the genetic abnormalities was where we'd lost our embryos the first round. So our embryos for and three came back normal it was huge for us. We yes. felt like all of a sudden we were in the game. Like that was the first time I think we really felt optimistic again where, oh my gosh, this could actually work. Right. Um, And that was such a huge difference in the feeling that we had at the beginning of round two when we were kind of like, is this going to work? Like we don't really know. And then all of a sudden we we're like, we have three real chances. So I think that was- Huge shift in our mentality where all of a sudden it felt possible. I mean, I was still nervous because I'd never seen a positive pregnancy test before. So Mm -hmm. I was like, Am I even capable of being pregnant? Uh, Am I capable of keeping? See, I had no. And so, really, not knowing anything about it had made me stressed out as well. Then, what happened was we actually needed to take a little bit of a break. Um, between that second retrieval and our frozen transfer. Mm-hmm. I was having another health issue that was totally unrelated mm-hmm. that I needed a really severe surgery on. And so we kind of needed to pump the brakes on that. And we spent the next six months trying to get centered, trying to heal, trying to connect with Brad. Finally, that six months, which felt like forever, ended, we did our first frozen embryo transfer. That was successful. Yeah. And Yeah, I know. Um, and had a pretty drama-free uh, pregnancy, which mm-hmm. was surprising because I think I was just expecting. Also, at that time, I'd been reading a lot of other people's stories with infertility, and I didn't want to take anything for granted. I knew we weren't out of the woods. And yeah, now we have a toddler.
0: When did you come up with the idea for Fruitful?
1: I had the idea for Fruitful. We we're still trying. I made a lot of friends on the internet and on Facebook and Instagram. And I had a few friends in different support groups or there was this infertility class that I really liked. But my problem was that I'm a naturally competitive person (laughs) and people would get pregnant. (laughs) And I was horrified. For me, I found a lot of comfort in talking to people who were no longer trying, Mm -hmm. but who knew what I was going through. Most of them had toddlers.
0: Yeah. People who had come out on the other side.
1: Exactly. But they knew what I was going through, but it wasn't competitive. So what you need is someone who can empathize and gets it, but isn't actually in the muck with you. They have a bit of perspective. And I was talking to Brad about it and he was like, oh my gosh, that's a great idea. Someone should totally make that. We should make it. I'm like, someone should do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he was like, we should do it. And I was like, that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he was like, no, we totally can do it. And Brad, my husband, is a uh, computer programmer and a software oh, wow. developer. Great. Now he was like, well, let's just make it and see what happens. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, well, what if no one likes it? What if no one signs up? What if this sucks? And I also knew when we were still building Fruitful, we didn't know how our story was going to end. We didn't know if we were going to have kids. We were still in the middle of our story. Oh, okay. So this idea came so before I was gonna you have- had your son. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so this happened before we had our kiddo, um, and I was just scared of being vulnerable about our infertility journey with everyone because I knew I was going to have to talk about it. I knew like I was going to become like sad and fertile girl. Mm-hmm. Very worried that people were going to feel sorry for me or pity me or ask me all the time, like what was going on. I think it's easier for people to talk about when there's an end. And especially if there's a happy ending, mm-hmm. that's a lot easier for other people to be like, see, everything worked out instead of like, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. We're still in the middle of our story. And we, don't. Right. So Brad and I built the site. We launched it in April, 2017 for National Infertility Awareness Week. Mm-hmm. And we were so surprised by how many people had signed up. We're talking about it. We're sharing it in different you know, private Facebook groups on different mm-hmm. podcasts. And we were just like, wow, this is something that people are finding a lot of value in, both the people who are looking for emotional support, of course, but also for people like you and me, Allie, who have been through it, but also it's changed who we are. And we wish that we could go back and tell like younger us that it's gonna be okay, all the hacks, all the information. So how is it going these days? How many people do you have signed up and
0: and how many, like mentors and mentees do you have? And if you have any great examples of like stories of people, you know, who've been on either oh side of it, I'd love to hear some.
1: There are so many awesome stories. I feel like people email me all the time, and then I'll print it out because I just love them so much. One woman said how she's a mentor and that she's had, Three mentees, and all of them have ended up having kiddos, and now all their kids are in the same playgroup. What? That's <laughs> like, crazy. I know. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. So I have about 4,000 users, a little mm-hmm. more than that, all over the U.S., in Canada, in some countries in Europe as well, wherever there's an internet connection, um, mm-hmm. you can sign up. You do have to be able to speak English because mm-hmm. um, because we only speak English, and it's just Brad and me right now. Mm-hmm uh but yeah you sign up you fill out an application that shares information about your history i think the cool thing is that because infertility is so specific people can want to talk to another couple who has you know severe male factor infertility or i want to talk to somebody who um had to do an egg retrieval while they had a cancer diagnosis or mm-hmm. we're a gay couple and we want Somebody, or I'm a single mother by choice like mm-hmm. we really are able to screen people and to make connections based on different histories values um, where they live all these different criteria so I think that's really the coolest part is we can help find you a match someone who you know if you believe everything happens for a reason and you want to talk to somebody who feels similarly if you're religious if you mm-hmm. are dealing with second fertility, if you are dealing with recurrent miscarriage, whatever it is, there's someone out there who's had a similar story who wants to help you. And I think that's so awesome.
0: Thanks guys so much for listening to my conversation with Elise. And Elise, thank you so much for sharing it with us. If you guys want to hear more about Fruitful, go to fruitfulfertility.org. And you can also find them on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, if you're not already following Fertility Rally, please go to at and our website too, which is thefertilityrally.com. Sign up for updates for our event in October because we are about to announce our venue, which is really exciting. So thanks to everybody who supported it so far. Can't wait to rally with you guys in October. And I will talk to you next time. Thanks.